Welcome to Not The Way I Planned. I'm Carly Cash, and if you've ever found yourself thinking, this is not the way I thought my life would turn out, you've come to the right place. Each week we'll have inspiring interviews, plus tips and tricks to living your best life, even if it's not the life you planned. My guest today is Trina Rogers. Trina is the mother of a very special young lady named Hannah that I had the opportunity to meet three years ago. And when I think of Hannah, Hannah was just the definition of light up a room. She had an infectious personality. And so thank you so much for being willing to share your family's story today, Trina. Thanks for having me, Carly. I want people to know what Hannah was like, especially, you know, as a little girl before this horrible disease started to kind of take over. So Hannah, she was from the moment she made her presence known, she had an opinion about everything and she was not afraid to tell you about it. Um, She had an infectious laugh, just eyes that would melt your any bad mood you might be having, all she had to do was look your way and yep. twinkle and you would just melt and everything was fine. <laughs> um, and she was super charismatic, um, charming. She loved to laugh, loved to make people laugh. Um, she just was amazing and she was super, super smart, amazingly yeah. smart. Um, we were like, she's going to be the rocket scientist one of these days. You know, that was like... She's just that smart that we were like, anything she was going to want to do, she was going to accomplish in life. Right. She was amazing. When did you start noticing little changes in her and thinking, hmm, something's not quite right here? So she she had a couple big seizures starting at two. Um, Which had to have been very scary. They were really scary. We called the ambulance the first time, obviously. Um, but by the time they got there, they said, oh, nope, she's not seizing anymore. Do you want to ride up to the hospital or what do you want to do? And um, I had called the family doctor at that time and they were just very reassurant that it was febrile seizures and she'd be fine just to keep her temperature down. Um, but after that seizure, she just wasn't quite as happy as she had been before that day. Um And then thankfully, we had been able to keep the seizures away for two more years after that. And then she had another one. And then again, personality changes, memory, memory loss that time. We started to see some memory, memory loss of things that she... Oof, that had to have been very scary. It was. And, you know, and everybody was reassuring us, oh, kids at this age, they'll they'll think they gained information, but then they didn't really. And then they have to relearn it. And so she's fine. Maybe it's an attitude. Right. Or behavioral thing. Right. So, yeah. So we kind of went through everybody's, oh, she's fine. She's fine. And um, the Christmas before she turned five, she had a really bad five minute grand mal. And after that, she started hearing voices, um, little people in her head. And she would tell us that she hears a little boy and a little girl. And that actually lasted, that she could tell us about, that lasted probably up until about 18 months ago that she could tell us who these people were. Um, And we really didn't know what to do with that. And it was really scary, actually. Um but then about, um, gosh, it was when she was six. That's when everybody said, after the neurologist said, well, if she's still having seizures after age six, when she turned six, 
then we'll do testing. Nobody wanted to do anything before that. Um, and then it was just before kindergarten got out. So she was a little over six and she just started having grand malls every three days. Oh my goodness. Um, and then they decided to start doing something, <laughs> which yeah. was really frustrating after for all us. those years. Yeah. Um, you know, to go three, four years waiting for them to do something to even uh, just look at her mm-hmm. basically. Um, we had several people tell us that there couldn't be anything wrong with her because she could skip down the hall. Yeah. That right. Was, that was okay. not a fun visit. No. <laughs> um, I had one doctor tell me that I was making up seizures and I must not know what seizures look like. And um, Unbelievable. Yeah. We went through quite a hard time. Um, when we went, we finally um, were told that she had not the good epilepsy that the kids grow out of. Um, but the forever kind, that's how they like to phrase it for new parents, I guess. Um, we were devastated and we kept telling them these seizures are hurting our child and she's losing information and she's losing pieces of her personality. And, um, at that time they kind of basically told us that, no, that's not how this works. And kids with seizure disorders are fine and she'll be fine. And but, but she has she has epilepsy at this point. That's what they're telling yeah, you. Yeah, so that's what they said. So they said, you know, um, learning disabilities. If she if they felt if they agreed with me, were common for epilepsy children to be a year behind in school. Okay. Even though she hadn't previously had any any issues up until that time, um, and then school that was over the summer, and then school started back up, and literally within a week or so of school the teacher had started messaging me and asking me, hey, have you noticed Hannah's starting to like put papers up real close to her face? And she's like holding stuff different and she's like bumping into kids and what do you think's going on? And I said, well, I kind of had noticed the last week or two that I think something's gone on with her vision as well. So um, with with her, we had already done um, the school testing the previous year, I think. Right, just standard, standard eye test. eye test, yeah. And I had taken her that March into an ophthalmologist because just to make sure because she had been kind of showing some other symptoms of learning disabilities, which, you know, the neurologist was telling us because of the epilepsy. Sure. Um, we went in, finally got an appointment with an actual um, it's ophthalmologist, correct? <laughs> correct, yes. That's the eye doctor. <laughs> the eye doctor. Um, the only peds one here for St. Luke's and um, they kind of questioned why I was there. They wanted to, they said she just had a good eye exam in March from this other optometrist. I don't know why you're here. Um, And she failed the test repeatedly. Mm. Um, They kind of were going to just send us home because the text said at the time that he felt like she was just being a kid and not wanting to take the test. Okay. Um, and I kept trying to explain to him that it was more than that. And I knew there was something. So I finally convinced them to dilate her eyes. And, um, that's actually what led us to her correct diagnosis of Batten disease. Um, they sent us to Portland for eye testing and with all the eye testing that they do there, Batten disease has what they call thumbprint inclusions on the retina of your eye. So Mm -hmm. it's basically unmissable. 
once you see it. And so that's, we went there up there December of 11, and then we got the call um, from our family doctor to come in the first week of January, and that's when he said we were pretty sure she has Batten disease. And were you like, what in the world is Batten disease? Well, we didn't know. So we were like, well, what is it? And and as doctors do is they say, well, it's a genetic disorder that leads to seizures and blindness and cognitive issues. And we're like, oh, well, that seems to all fit. And But then they get to the part where they say something to the effect of it's fatal and there are no treatments. And you're like, did I hear you correctly? And yeah, you literally... I. I've had, I had the biggest panic attack I ever, I don't, I'm not much for panic attacks. I don't generally get them, but I had one and I got physically ill. It's your child. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How, how do you say, well, she has epilepsy and she's blind and now you're telling me my child's going to die and there's nothing anyone can do to help me. Yeah. Yeah, It's devastating. And did they tell you with that, there's a certain timeline or what did that even look like? What, what kind of. I don't even want to call it hope because it really was just this hopeless diagnosis. Yeah, I don't I don't throw around the word hope. I never did um, during her journey because it, it that wasn't what it was for us. Because no. at the end of the day, we knew no matter what we did or how long we did it, she was not going to live um, a normal life or even a normal lifespan. So um, they did genetic testing to confirm. Um, but they... There just wasn't anything. There weren't even any clinical trials at the time. And I think they just generally, they kind of just say, go home and love your kid, basically, is really? kind of what you get. Um, which is, you know, I don't think I ate for a couple months. I mean, my husband had to force me to eat food. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's, um, I can't even imagine processing that. I don't know what you do with it. I, I, we cried a lot, a lot. I mean, I, I hear of other people that say that they didn't want to cry in front of their kids, but um, I, mean, I didn't have any control over that at that time. Yeah. Um, and you have an older daughter. I do Paige, have an older daughter, and so, Paige. And sh- yeah, we had to keep living. We had to keep doing and we had to keep going to school and yeah. functioning and all of and, that amidst and, your grief. Yeah. And it flipped your world upside down in the sense that you now had to become her full-time caregiver. I did. I was, um, I lost my job that May um, that I had had for eight years. Um, And then it just didn't really make sense to attempt to try to do another job with her. Um, It wouldn't have worked. I mean, nobody would have taken on me that said I could only come at these hours on these days and it just wouldn't have worked. And so I just life stopped what I was doing and the goals I had had made for myself stopped. And we just, I just became her full-time caregiver, her advocate, her fundraiser, you know, guru. That was, that was hard times. And it just 24 hours a day, it was all revolved around what Hannah needed when and why and how to get all those things accomplished for her. Yeah. And with something as rare as Batten disease, there had to have been an incredible sense of loneliness in all of it. Huge isolation. Um, I was fortunate enough to be directed to a parent 
Facebook group for ch- for kids with Batten disease. Um, no one here locally um, at her for the first six years of her diagnosis. Um, we did it all on our own. Everything she needed, everything I wanted, everything she deserved, I had to fight for and I had to push through and I had to argue and do appeals and fundraise and beg people and every little thing that she did or didn't get to do, I had to initiate. Yeah. I mean, you're talking services at school, therapy, medical equipment, medication. Yeah. All um, of that stuff. We we added on to our house for her. Um, that was three years of us literally all by ourselves. We had a few people step in here and there. Um, we had a little girl step in and, and do a jumpathon at her school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was several thousand dollars that raised. Um, and then we had um, one gal step in and um, do a um, model for a day runway walk she did a big event um fashion show for us and that raised several thousand dollars and but other than that we did all of it ourselves up until the very last month and we had and we did have one um nonprofit come in and help us ethan's reason paired up with home depot to help us finish up the last five thousand dollars of stuff with the house yeah um but i mean we i did all of that it was I think it ended up being like $60,000 addition to our house. Um, And we, yeah, that was so much work. Um, It was like a full-time job on top of caring for her and trying to take care of the house and Paige and, you know, do the wife things. So um, it was really hard. And then every time we'd go to a doctor, they only wanted to focus on one symptom of her disease. And so by the end of... Her time, I think we had eight. Maybe we might might have actually had nine specialists there at the end. Um, Because only one doctor wanted to take care of seizures and one wanted to take care of behavior and one wanted to help with sleep. And yeah, and it was was exhausting. I think we were probably driving to to a doctor at least twice a week for the last year. Yeah, and as you're talking about this, I think about like you you say the great things that people would come forth and do periodically, you know, the jumpathon or people they want to help, but mm-hmm. everyone kind of has their own life and you're stuck with this every day. So there's these little pockets of reprieve, I guess, but you know, we often hear in our society you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first and self-care self-care. You really didn't have any opportunity to do that. There was no chance for self-care. Um, I love the word self-care. I think it's great. But um, for parents that have medically fragile kids, unless you have that extra added in-home support, which we didn't really have. Which costs money. Which does cost money. And um, you know, insurance doesn't really want to pay you to go out to dinner with your spouse. No. No, they do not. <laughs> And, and, and so it just kind of became the word self-care kind of became a source of anger for me, actually, because there was no time, there was no opportunity for self-care because 
we had we had some outward community support, which is was uh, fantastic and fabulous and greatly appreciated. But we didn't have day to day, even once a month help. We didn't have. I had a couple relatives that would come every so often for a little bit, but it just was all everything was day to day in and out. I make all the phone calls. I make all the appointments. I do all the driving. I do all the, you know, and 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 um, there just isn't self care. Yeah. Unless you have that extra support in your home. Right. Um, And I would love to advocate that if you know a family with with a medically fragile child, don't offer help. Go help. Exactly. Yeah. I think so many times we say the words, oh, let me know if you need anything. But people need to just recognize there's a significant need there. I'm going to go help. Yeah, it's almost is it's almost as if you need to just say, okay, these are the days I'm free and I'm going to come over and do whatever you need for this hour on yeah. this day. Right. Even if that's doing dishes or vacuuming or whatever the case may be, because we really do need it and we really do appreciate it. But we don't have time to seek it out either. No. We, we're a full-time job taking care of trying to stay afloat with what we've got on our plate. Yeah. So. And you know, this is your role in the family. And then you've got a husband that probably feels even extra pressure to bring home an income, significant income. And you've got a daughter, an older daughter, that her world's also been flipped upside down, no fault to you. But a lot of the attention has to go to Hannah. So how did it look with the different members of your family? How did this affect everyone? So I think the dynamics really shifted from having two children in the home to having three caregivers and one child. Um, yeah. And I nobody liked that, but it was like a necessary thing that had to happen. There was no option. There wasn't an option. There was we did as much as we could to to let Paige have normalcy when possible, but it wasn't always possible. And she at you know the older she got the more she literally just became part of the decision making for Hannah as well um and when um Hannah passed away in June that family dynamic changed once again that you know as a parent we're kind of thinking that well maybe we should go back to having Paige be a child <laughs> right right and she's like well no i've kind of been a mini adult for Right. I mean, you battled this for what? Eight? No, six? Uh, Well, since early 2012 is when we got diagnosis. So seven and a half years post-diagnosis. So it, you just can't, and now Paige is almost 17. So (sighs) you can't really, as a parent, I can't really expect her to just revert to a child once again um, as being part of that caregiving team. So um, bless her heart because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't even realize that she's where she's sitting, I think. And I don't think that we're, we're all still trying to learn four months out. We're all still trying to learn where we are now. Sure. You know, without Hannah in our lives. Because yeah. everything stopped um, when she died. And the doctor visits stopped. The doctor stopped. The, you know, the needing all that extra help stopped I you know I she did finally qualify for nursing services and I never got that position filled so (laughs) yeah your whole world just stopped so you fought this battle for seven and a half years and then you 
you kind of knew, I think you knew as it got closer towards the end that, that it was, her time was near. I, I did start seeing some signs at the end of last year. Um, I started talking to one of my friends um, that lost her son to Batten disease six years ago. Um, she lives in Minnesota. She's been super, super support for me over the years. Um, I started telling her, I said, I'm seeing the signs and I'm starting to have a gut feeling that I, I don't think Hannah will be here at this time next year. Um, it's a little young for the version of Batten disease. She, she had to, to pass away at 14. Um, not unheard of. Um, but I started to know, and I really knew by January that this was going to be the year she died. And yet I would think, I mean, how do you, how do you prepare for something like that? You, I can't imagine that you can really, even though they tell you this is going to happen, you know, you've got this hopelessness, but, but then when the reality is there, it just seems so you know, crushing. I, th- I don't know. I think part of it for me is that I always lived in the reality that I knew she was going to die. Yeah. Um, And I took that as a, I hate to use the word blessing, but it was a, it was a positive to me to accept that she was not, no matter what I did, she was still going to die at some point. So in the sense of making all of the moments count? is Right. Right. So we just, when, whenever we had an opportunity to to bring her joy, even if it was just for an hour once a week, we did so. Yeah, and we took her on you know as many fishing adventures as we could because she loved fishing. (laughs) She was she was so good at it. We could all be being skunked, and she would haul in a fish. Um, (laughs) Well, and Hannah just delighted in life in like the simplest little things. I had the opportunity to spend a day with her, and you know she went on a horse and carriage ride, and she just would light up. You know, everything was just extra special and extra magical, I think, in her world. And it was amazing to me. Here's this girl that has these astronomical challenges and she could still find great joy in life. And she, up until I think the last 10 days, she she did. She was smiling and she was fairly happy. Um, I get emotional about the talking about the last few days, but... Um, she loved people and she loved any, it could be a trip to the store and she would think she won the lottery. You know, <laughs> you could take her and buy her a Barbie doll and that was the greatest thing that happened to her all week. And yeah, it didn't matter. It was, you know, five minutes of your time and a $5 Barbie. She didn't care, you know, and um, she always, she could bring out the best in people when they stop to listen and Absolutely. watch and pay attention. And yes, um, I know she changed a lot of people's lives, um, but we, we miss her a lot. Yeah. Like you said, your whole world just kind of stopped. Everything. Um, I don't know how to explain it because there's really no preparing for the day after. Yeah. There really isn't. You can know. And I think this goes with any with anybody that knows they're going to lose a loved one. Um, you can say it and you can feel it and you can know it, but until you're doing it, right, you just don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. And we all handle it so much differently. You know, Paige wanted to just go and go be out and do stuff with her friends and mm-hmm. 
Bob needed to go back to work for many reasons. And, you know, we still have bills to pay too, but it was good for him to go back to a routine and a schedule. Yeah. And then it kind of left me alone, which was actually the worst, the worst part, really. Sure. Because your sense of purpose is kind of gone. Yeah. I just kind of feel helpless. Like, yeah, it just, you, you fight so hard for them every day. And then it's just gone. Yeah. And you feel like there's nothing left to fight for. Well, and you've talked about how your medical community is gone. All of these people that were just a part of your world, it, regardless of whether you were super close or not, they're... Right. they're yeah, they're gone too. They're gone. You know, all of her specialists, all the nurses, all the aides, all the secretaries, all those people that I... Most of them I knew from a first name basis. Um, they're all gone too. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's almost like you get dropped off in a new city and you, it's an entirely different battle yeah. and you have to start over. Yeah. So, um, it's been really challenging to find out, figure out how to do what to do, when to do it. Um, it's lonely. It's very yeah. lonely. And yet you too have a, a sense of freedom it's like it's got to be so weird that you and your husband can go on a date now or you can travel yeah and I I don't even know if you can enjoy that it's really um bittersweet um yeah because we we didn't get to do a lot of things because she got so sick where she we couldn't take her yeah um and so we just didn't go a lot because we always felt like we're a family of four and we go. If one goes, we all go. But um, I think it was literally, maybe it was the first weekend after her funeral. And we just got in the car and went somewhere. And my my husband was like, this feels really wrong. Yeah, there, there's not a wheelchair to pack up. There's not. You don't have to pack a kid. You're not packing a wheelchair. You're not packing food. You're not packing meds. You're not going off of her schedule um, of when she's feeling good and when she's not. And you can just go. Yeah. You can get on a plane and go visit friends, and <laughs> which is super nice, but it's it's really hard. Yeah. It's a, it's a new normal that you're just <laughs> not used to. And I'm sure something feels very void in your life. And yeah, you, um, we, we were fortunate enough to get to go visit a friend in Chicago recently. And I got to, um, send, send my husband home a few days early. And I went to Minneapolis where a few of my friends are. And on the flight from, from Chicago to Minneapolis, I just cried the entire, (laughs) the entire time because now I can go. Right. Right. And I would trade it all to to not get to go anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that I really admire about you, Trina, is your advocacy. And you're not afraid to say, you know what, this is how it should be. (laughs) Or people shouldn't say these things to people that have children with special needs or children that have passed on. What are some of the messages there that you want people to know? Or how do you want things to change? Um, I think a lot of the things that I 
I've been very vocal throughout Hannah's journey with, you know, people would stare and I, please don't stare. Yeah. Um, Seems like we should be past that, right? We should really be past that in this year. Um, Everybody's different. We don't know what anybody's story is. And I might look perfectly healthy to most people, but I have significant health issues too. Right. And so we should, we should stop doing that visual um, judging. Um, Let's just be accepting um, of what, wherever anyone is really doesn't matter if you have a three piece suit on or, or you're homeless. Um, everybody deserves to be treated equally. Um, and I really did advocate for that for her to, um, just include her, you know, just let them feel included, say hello. Um, and if they don't respond back to you, that's okay. Cause maybe they can't, or they don't know you or they don't talk to strangers, but exactly, but at least they know and their parents know that you that you saw them. That yeah, they, they deserve seen. that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I've always been a big advocate for providing the kids, especially with what they actually need. Um, Hannah had significant medical issues. And I think I spent probably, well, really hard the last year, but probably the last three years getting equipment for her. Yeah. And yet we had talked in, and it was shocking to me that, you know, um, insurance would pay for one aspect of uh, medical equipment, but not a key aspect that made that other part work or, you know, it, what they would and would not pay for was a constant battle. It, and it felt, and it felt truly like they, um, they felt like if you're, child is in a wheelchair that they don't deserve equal access to the outside world. That's how it felt. Wow. Um, you know, they don't care if you can, even if you get the wheelchair, they don't care if you can be able to transport the wheelchair anywhere. Right. <laughs> Which is huge. It's like, hello, we need so, to go places. Right. So um, I think fighting for people with disabilities, especially those with wheelchairs, to have equal huge. And I think... It, even here, we're still, we're still so far away from from providing those those services and those. You know, you don't think about it, but I see them now all the time. I when I was in Minneapolis with my friend and we went um, walking, it's like, oh my gosh, this is not wheelchair accessible at all, right? And you can't help but s- see those things now. Um, and it just shouldn't be that way. No. We should, we should. I know there's expense involved, but we should be able to have equal access to the communities we live in. Yeah, absolutely. What are some things that you've experienced in your grief process, how people have reacted to you? Are there things that you're like, ah, don't say that to me? Because I think we all mean well. People mean well, they do. But a lot of times you you don't know what to say. I, I've been in so many situations where I'm like, I don't know what to say. I want to say the right things. I think sometimes I'm sorry goes way longer. And it goes way farther than people realize. Okay. Um, in my particular, you know, I had people offer assistance after she died, but then they never spoke to me again. And it's been four months. Um, yeah. And yeah. we've kind of like, well, where were you for the last seven years? You know, that's what, I mean, I would, I enjoy the company. I would love to get out more personally, but I don't think we need, um, you know, we don't need meals now and we don't need offers of, 
little things like that now. We, we actually need the interaction, the communication with the outside world. Um, I think one thing that really has bothered me since Hannah passed away um, that I don't want people to say is I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, and I, I, I don't want, we don't want you to. Okay, that's a no. That's a good point because I know I've said that myself. Right. I with, mean, I with good think, intentions. I don't think anybody's not said it at least once to someone. Sure. Um. And so when I bring up stuff like that, it's never a personal dig on a, a specific person. It's just that we would like it if you would say, "I'm not really sure what to say, but can we just sit and talk, or can I just sit and listen to you?" Yes. Um. We're not really seeking out you to fix anything because it's an unfixable loss. Right. And I think we as people a lot of times naturally are fixers. I'm a fixer. Right. I want to fix it. And you're right. We can't. And I think it's a huge lesson in learning to just sit with people in their grief. Don't forget them. Like you said, four months down the road, because there is all this attention when someone passes or there's some sort of a tragedy. You've got all that support in the beginning and then it just kind of trickles away. Yeah. I and mean, you're I, still left in your grief. I mean, Hannah had over 250 people at her funeral and I didn't publicly advertise her service because she had a public Facebook page and I just wasn't at the point where I, I was potentially wanting nice people, but strangers to us at her funeral. Um And I just wondered at that time, it, it almost, I mean, we had a few people bring dinner and one thing I think is intriguing that people probably don't realize, but after someone dies, you're not really hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I know. In the darkest moments of my life, that's the last thing I want to do is so we're eat. Not, yeah, we're not really hungry. And so um, it's, a, it's a wonderful gesture, but you end up with all this food that in your fridge, in your freezer, that you're like, what do we do with all this great stuff? Because you're not really hungry. Yeah. Um, even if you're making yourself eat, you're not eating what you norm the amount you normally would. And so there's just yeah. And so those are some silly things that people don't don't really think about um, that I felt were, were super sweet, not totally helpful. Yes. For us personally. Yeah. But that's going to be different for each person, really each family. You know, is that going to be helpful for them? But I, I do know most people in grief are not. Not hungry. hungry. Yeah. And yet the most common reaction is, can I bring you a meal? Right. Yeah. You know, I think maybe more something along that lines was, can I give you a gift card for when you are hungry that you can order something yeah. in instead of, and I think people would think that would be weird, but I think it would be more practical. Yeah. And I think that's a message people need to hear because yeah. people on the outside, they don't think that through. Really. Yeah. You're not hungry and you don't really want to go do anything. And yeah. And, exactly. Um, so, you, you know, the, the offers of food, which is the sweetest gesture, really, um, just not real effective. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, one thing is you document some of your grief online and in your memory tag, she deserved better. Mm -hmm. And she did. She, she did. absolutely did. Not with us. I, I don't want people to take that the wrong way. Um, we did everything yes. and more to do right by her and to give her as many adventures as we possibly could with what we were what we were faced with. Um, but 
we feel like we've come so far in the medical world that there shouldn't be any disease that says there's no treatment. Yes. That yeah. there's no hope. Yeah. Um, we should all get the right to, even with rare diseases, to have that opportunity to maybe we can slow this down. Maybe we can make this a little better even. if Even if we can't cure, maybe, you know, we all deserve that. Let's see if we can make it better or easier or not so hard or less symptoms. Yeah. Oh, um, I think it should be the biggest priority in our world, you know, ex- especially childhood diseases like this right. that just. Well, and they are actually childhood diseases are actually the, the most harmful to the children. Um, and they usually take the children the fastest. And there are. I mean, the percentage of treatments for rare diseases is just, it's minimal. I mean, it's in the single digits that there's treatments for the rare diseases. And is there um, research going on or do we need, we need a lot more of that, I would imagine? Um, there's always lots of research going on. Um, whether that produces viable treatments, that's, where, that's the hard part. Okay, yeah. So um, there, I know there's a new clinical trial that they just started Maybe it was last summer for Hannah's type of batten disease, but that was that's not even maybe been a year now. Yeah. So in clinical trials, there are three, four, five years and ongoing. Um. So you really don't know the efficacy or if it's going to to help. You know, for several years. Right. Even once you get to the clinical trial stage, which you know it can be five, ten years to get to a clinical trial. Yeah. And how many kids are lost along the way there? Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know when this last clinical trial, they were the age limit was ten <laughs> that they were accepting into the clinical trial. Right. So with Hannah's disease, most children don't even get diagnosed till eight or nine or possibly ten years old. But um, so we had a lot of parents that had eleven, twelve, thirteen year old um, children devastated that they their child disclinify for the clinical trials. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's really difficult. The whole process is difficult. Yeah. One thing that I often hear when people are grieving, I'll, I'll hear other people, and I'm probably guilty of this too, say to people is, well, there, there's got to be um, goodness that comes from this or blessings. And sometimes I think, no, it's just a flat out tragedy. Like there, there isn't anything great that really did come of it. What are your thoughts on that? So my mom really wanted us to be in a grief group. So my Paige and I and my mom have been going to this grief group for uh, a little over a month now. And we actually just talked about this was that the misnomer that everything happens for a reason. Yes. Um, I think I'll just watch my words. I think crap just happens sometimes mm-hmm. and we just have to deal with it. And I think... I think when people say, oh, it's so, so grateful that she's not hurting anymore or she's right. not suffering or she's in heaven. And, you know, none of that actually helps a parent deal with the loss of their child. Nothing yeah. comforts us when you say stuff like that. It makes us feel like we shouldn't be feeling what we're feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think I had someone one time tell me in not so nice words that, Hannah had to go through all this suffering and die because of how many lives she had the opportunity to change. Ugh. And as a mother, yeah, 
very, very, very hard to not get very angry at that person in that moment because yeah. they don't understand what they just said. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's great. And she did. Hannah touched many lives, but that doesn't mean that she... But that's not worth her life. Absolutely not. And and what it's done to your family's life. Right. Uh, you know, that, that I don't... When I look at your story, I just see incredible loss. I mean, it, it, in so many ways, you know, you had this beautiful child that had incredible potential, an amazing personality, and she she deserved better, as you said, and your family deserved better. And that's it. It Like you said, it's a crappy situation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it was so isolating and so physically and mentally and emotionally um, demanding. Um, she didn't sleep. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if she slept more than four hours, we were thrilled. Um, and you'd be really surprised at how long you can go, how many <laughs> years you can go on four hours of sleep. Um, and you don't even realize you're tired at that point. I mean, you just feel like you're that's tired. That's your new normal. But, but that's just what it is. So you yeah. just adjust. But um, I think I had someone tell me one time that, we get to choose our path in life when before we're born. And as much of a wonderful thought as that is, I feel like someone would only say that that hadn't had to deal with great suffering. Yes, because you never would have chosen this. Because she would have never gone through all of that. No. Um, if she had a choice. Yeah. Um. And I, you know, and me with having a lot of my physical and, um, health issues, um, I wouldn't choose this either. So no. it makes a big, it makes a big impact when we try to pay attention to our words when, when we're around. Well, anybody really, we really should, but, yeah. um, just take a little bit more care when we're around people that are struggling and not to try to make it easier or better or make us feel like it's not hard because it's really hard. Yep. I think those are incredible messages that people need to hear. We need to have a shift there where we're not fixing things so much and just continually seeing the need that's there and, and not forgetting people and, you know, continuing to show support in maybe some better ways. Yeah, and yeah. it's okay to not have the answers and it's okay yep. not to try to make someone feel better about their situations. Yeah. Just let the person know that you're around and mm -hmm. you can go to coffee or tea or lunch or yeah. anytime and What are your thoughts on I I've often been in a position where I'm like, okay, I can't financially right. help. But I want them to know that I care and that I haven't forgotten. What do you say to someone in that situation? What are things that people can do? So I think what we what we forget is that all of us, barring a few of us, have time. Yep. We do have an available time that we're not doing anything. Put, you know, put your book away or don't go out, you know, watch, watch that movie that night on Netflix or TV or whatever. And you can go and, hey, can I help you with some yard work or do some weeding or can I come over and clean your kitchen or scrub some toilets? Everybody can do that. Yes. Or even just um, pick up the phone and have a conversation and saying, I was 
thinking just, about you. Yeah, or yeah, pick up the phone and say, hey, I just wanted to spend 20 minutes talking to you and see how you're doing today. Yeah. Means more to us than, than you'd really know. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I just, I don't know that I have the right words <laughs> to say, you know, um, I'm just grateful that your family came into my life and that I had the opportunity to get to know Hannah and, and I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for your difficult journey. And I just want you to know that I'm, I'm going to try to be one of those people that reaches out. I haven't been the best, but I hope that we as a society through your words and your example can all start to do a little bit better. Yeah, I hope so. I, um, we appreciate it. And it, 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 none of it ever goes unnoticed, however small or big, we do appreciate it. And we do, we notice and we pay attention. And, um, even now, since I have more time, I get to I get to be that person that gets to go reach out to some other families and yeah. try to offer more support. Um, and I feel like that's a responsibility that I have now. Um, I want to do it, but it's also I, I, I need to do it and I should be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of comes full circle. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Trina. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you, Carly. Thank you for joining this edition of Not The Way I Planned. If you like what you heard, you can find more at notthewayiplanned.com as well as Not The Way I Planned on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.